welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, a podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Hello, hello. Last week I came to you because I wasn't feeling well, and I put a message saying that I would start back up this week and I have failed to upload a new podcast. It's already Wednesday. I recorded a new chapter, uh, chapter 14, but my voice is very shot in the chapter. So I am going to take another week off and I will start back up. I believe it's January 3rd, chapter 15. I will upload chapter 14, even though my voice does not sound great at all. My voice sounds fine right now but it doesn't last long is the problem I can record for like five minutes and the problem is is that the chapters are really long um it's 20 to 25 minutes no matter what and after about five minutes my voice is just shot so I just wanted to let you know that I will be coming back January 3rd if my voice allows me to, uh, this uh, bronchitis and everything is just lingering, I will have a new chapter for you. I apologize for the inconvenience uh, with the holidays and uh, my being sick. It just didn't work well and it was probably a good thing to take a couple of weeks off. I shouldn't have pushed myself as soon as I did for chapter 14, but this episode will be the last one for another five or six days. So I just wanted to give you that heads up and then I will be back with my regular chapter a day, Monday through Friday. Thank you so much for your patience. If you have any questions, you can email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. All right, thank you so much, and I will hopefully talk to you soon. Chapter 14, The Black Current. That part of the Earth's surface that lies underwater is estimated to total 148 million square miles. That is to say, water covers more than 94 billion acres of our globe. The total volume of this liquid mass is more than 2 billion cubic miles. It could form a sphere with a diameter of more than 2,000 miles. Its total weight would be about 3 quintillion tons. To grasp the significance of that figure, we should note that a quintillion is to a billion what a billion is to one. There are as many billions in a quintillion as there are ones in a billion. And this mass... These three quintillion tons of liquid is about one equal to all the water discharged by all the rivers on the earth over a period of 40,000 years. During the geological epochs, the igneous period was succeeded by the aqueous period. The earth was completely immersed in water. Gradually, during the Silurian period, mountaintops began to appear. Islands rose above the waters, disappeared in partial deluges, rose again, settled, formed continents, and finally the land became fixed geographically, such as it is today. Land, in its struggle with water, emerged victoriously and conquered about 38 million square miles, more than 24 billion acres. The emergence of these continents divided the waters into five oceans, the Arctic, the Antarctic, the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. The Pacific extends north to south between the two polar circles and east to west between Asia and America across 145 degrees of longitude. It is the most tranquil ocean of all. Its currents are wide and slow, 
It has moderate tides and an abundant rainfall. Such is the ocean I was first destined to travel in the most unusual circumstances. Monsieur le professeur, Captain Nemo said, if you do not mind, we will take our correct bearings and thus fix our point of departure for this voyage. It is almost noon, quarter to twelve to be exact. We are going to rise to the surface. He pressed an electric bell three times. The pumps began to empty the tanks. The needles of the manometer indicated the change in pressure as the Nautilus kept rising. Then the ship stopped. Here we are, said the captain. I went out to the central staircase that led up to the platform. I mounted the metal steps, passed through the number of open hatches, and reached the superstructure of the Nautilus. The platform was only three feet out of the water. The bow and stern of the Nautilus was spindle-shaped, and the ship resembled a long cigar. I noticed that its iron plates, which slightly overlapped each other, resembled the shells that cover the bodies of large land reptiles. This was the reason why, despite telescopes of the best quality, the Nautilus had always been mistaken for an aquatic animal. At about the middle of the platform, the dinghy, half sunk inside the ship's hull, protruded slightly. Both fore and aft, there were two cages of medium height with sloping walls, parts of which were paneled with thick lenticular glass. One case was for the steersman, the other held the powerful electric searchlight that lighted its course. The sea was extremely beautiful, the sky crystal clear, and the long vessel rolled gently on the undulating crests of the waves. A light easterly breeze rippled the surface of the water. There were no mist on the horizon, nothing to obstruct it, our visibility. There was nothing in sight, not a reef, not an island. The Abraham Lincoln was nowhere to be seen. There was nothing but a vast, deserted open sea. Captain Nemo, sextant in hand, measured the altitude of the sun which was to give him his latitude. He waited for a few minutes until the sun touched the horizon. As he watched, not a muscle moved. The instrument could not have been more still in a hand of marble. Midday, he said, whenever you wish, Monsieur le Professeur. I cast a final glance at the shores of Japan, at the sea, touched with yellow, and went down into the big saloon. The captain noted his bearings, calculated his longitude with by the chronometer, and checked it against his previous bearings. Monsieur Aranax, he said, we are at longitude 137 degrees, 15 minutes west. From which meridian? I asked quickly, hoping the captain's reply might give me a clue to his nationality. I have various chronometers, monsieur, he replied, sought by the meridians of Paris, of Greenwich, and of Washington. However, I shall do you the honor of using the Parisian. His reply revealed nothing. I bowed, and the captain continued. Longitude, 37 degrees. 15 minutes west of the Paris meridian and latitude 30 degrees 7 minutes north. We are about 300 miles off the coast of Japan. Today is the 8th of November. The time is midday and we now begin our voyage of exploration under the sea. God reserve us, I replied. And now, Professor, the captain added, I leave you to your studies. I have set our course at east-northeast at a depth of 37 fathoms. Here are large-scale maps by which we, you may follow the route. The saloon is at your disposal, and with your permission, I will retire. Captain Nemo bowed. I was left alone deep in thought. My mind was completely absorbed by the commander of the Nautilus. Would I ever know the nationality of the strange man who boasted that he belonged to no nation? Who or what had provoked his hatred against humanity? Was he contemplated in seeking vengeance against those who had provoked that hatred? Was he one of those frustrated scientists, one of those geniuses whose work had been spurned, as Conseil had remarked? a modern Galileo, or perhaps one of those scientists like the American Moray, 
whose career was ruined by a political revolution. It was too early for me to say. Destiny had just cast me on board his ship. My life was in his hands. He had received me with coolness but hospitality. He had never shaken the hand I held out for him, and he had never offered me his. For a whole hour I remained lost in my reflections, endeavoring to get to the bottom of this mystery, which I found so fascinating. Then my eyes fell on the vast planisphere spread out on the table, and I put my finger on the very spot where our latitude and longitude crossed. The sea, like the continents, has its large rivers. They are special currents recognized by their temperature and by their color, the most remarkable of which is known as the Gulf Stream. Science has discovered the direction of five principal currents that flow around the globe. One is in the North Atlantic, a second in the South Atlantic, a third in the North Pacific, a fourth in the South Pacific, and a fifth in the South Indian Ocean. It is probable that there was a sixth current in the north of the Indian Ocean where the Caspian and Aral Seas were part of the great lakes of Asia formed only one expanse of water. At this very point on the planisphere was indicated one of these currents, the Japanese Kurishio, or Black Current, which leaves the Gulf of Bengal, where it is warmed by the direct rays of the tropical sun, crosses the Strait of Malacca, flows along the Asian coast, curves into the North Pacific, and reaches the Aleutian Islands carrying with its trunks of camphor trees and other indigenous products and blending the pure indigo of its warm waters with the waves of the ocean it was this current that the nautilus was now to pass through i followed it with my eyes fascinated until it disappeared swallowed by the vast waters of the pacific just then conseil and ned appeared at the door of the saloon they were dumbfounded at the display of marvels that met their eyes where are we where are we cried the canadian are we at the museum of quebec if monsieur will permit me exclaimed conseil it looks more like the hotel de Sumar. my friends i replied motioning to them to come in you are not in canada nor in france you are on board the nautilus more than one hundred and sixty feet below the surface of the sea if monsieur says so it must be so replied conseil but frankly this room is enough to astonish even a fleming like me you should be astonished my friend take a good look there is plenty of work to be done here for an expert classifier like you. There was no need to encourage Conseil, for the worthy fellow was already bending over the showcases and murmuring words in the language of naturalists, class of gastropods, family of buccinoids, genus of porcelains, species of Cyproea, Madagascarianesis, etc. During this time, Ned Land, who was not much of a conchologist, questioned me about my interview with Captain Nemo. Had I discovered who he was, where he came from, where he was going, to what depths he was dragging us to, and a thousand and one questions I had no time to answer. I told him everything I knew, or rather everything I didn't know, and asked him whether he had heard anything. I have seen nothing, I have heard nothing, replied the Canadian. I haven't seen any sign of the crew. Do you suppose they, too, are run by electricity? By electricity? Really, Monsieur Aranax, I wouldn't be surprised if they were. Be serious. But seriously, continued Ned Land, who was obsessed by one idea, could you tell me how many men there are on board, ten, twenty, fifty, or a hundred? I wouldn't know, Master Land, but believe me, you had better give up any notion you may have of seizing the Nautilus or of escaping. For the time being, this ship is a masterpiece of modern technology, and I should be very sorry indeed not to have seen it. Many people would willingly accept a situation such as this if it were only to gaze at the, all these wonders. Do not be disturbed, Ned, and let us try and see what is happening around us. See! cried the harpooner. We can't see anything. We will never see anything beyond this iron prison. We are moving. We are navigating, but all blindly. 
Ned Land had scarcely uttered these words when suddenly we were plunged into total darkness. The luminous ceiling was extinguished so suddenly that my eyes felt a painful sensation such as one feels when one emerges from pitch darkness into a dazzling light. We had remained silent. We did not move, not knowing whether a pleasant or unpleasant surprise was in store for us. Suddenly there was a sliding sound as if panels set in the side of the Nautilus were moving. "'This is the end once and for all!' cried Ned Land. "'Out of order of Hydromedusas!' murmured Conseil. Suddenly, a light appeared on both sides of the saloon, coming through two oblong panels. The watery mass outside was vividly illuminated by electric gleams. Only two plates of crystal separated us from the sea. At first, I trembled at the thought that this fragile wall might crumble, but it was reinforced by strong bands of copper that gave it an almost infinite power of resistance. The sea was distinctly visible over a radius of a mile around the Nautilus. What a spectacle! Who could possibly describe the effects of those beams of light flashing through the, that mass of translucent water? Who could possibly paint the soft tints of color that were reflected on those beams splashed through the upper stratum to the lowest level of the sea? The clarity of seawater is well known and is greater than the transparency of land water. The mineral and organic substances that it holds in suspension intensifies its transparency. In certain areas of the ocean, the Antilles, for example, sandy bed more than seventy-five fathoms down can be seen with amazing clarity the sun's rays can penetrate only to a depth of a hundred and fifty fathoms in the midst of the liquid mass through which the nautilus was traveling the brilliancy of the searchlight seemed to create in its own undulating waves it was no longer illuminated water but liquid light if we accept the hypothesis of Ehrenberg, who believes in the existence of phosphorescent illumination in the depths of the sea, then nature has certainly reserved for the inhabitants of the ocean one of the most insignificant sights, which I was now able to judge for myself from the thousand of different effects of that light. On each side I had an open window, facing this unexplored abyss. The darkness of the saloon made the brilliancy outside particularly striking. We looked out as if that transparent crystal were the window of an immense aquarium. The Nautilus seemed to be motionless. There was nothing close at hand against which to gauge movement. Occasionally, however, the waves created in the water by the ship's prow flashed past us at great speed. Filled with amazement, we leaned against the windows, and none of us had yet broken the silence of astonishment when Conseil said, Well, Ned, you need to see. Now you can see. How strange! Strange indeed! Ned kept muttering. He found that spectacle fascinating and irresistible and forgot for the moment both his anger and his desire for freedom. A man would travel much farther than this to see such wonders. Ah, I exclaimed, now I can understand better what inspires that man. He has created a world of his own full of the most astonishing marvels. What about the fish? The Canadian remarked. I don't see any fish. Why should you care, Ned? retorted Conseil. You know nothing about fish. "'I know nothing about fish. I, a fisherman!' cried Ned Land. An argument broke out between the two friends, for both knew a great deal about fish, each from a different point of view, however. As everyone knows, fish form the fourth and last class of the subdivision of vertebrates. They are defined as vertebrates with a double circulatory system, cold-blooded and breathing through permanent gills, and destined to live only in water. There are two distinct series bony fish that is fish whose spinal column is made of bony vertebrae and the cartilaginous fish those whose spines is composed of cartilaginous vertebrae 
the Canadian was perhaps aware of this distinction, but Conseil knew much more about this subject. Although they are good friends, Conseil was not prepared to admit that he was in any way less informed than Ned. Ned, he said, you are a killer of fish and a very clever fisherman. You have caught a great number of these interesting animals. I would bet, though, that you don't know how to classify them. Oh, yes, I do, the harpooner replied in all seriousness. They can be classified into fish that can be eaten and fish that can't. That's the distinction of a glutton, rejoined Conseil. Tell me if you know the difference between bony fish and cartilaginous fish. Of course I do, Conseil. And the subdivision of the two main classes? Well, I think I know that too, replied the Canadian. Well, Ned, just listen to me and try to remember. Bony fish are divided into six orders. First, the Acanthroperygians, these whose upper jaw is complete and mobile and whose gills are shaped like a comb. These order comprises 15 families, three-fourths of all fish known to man. Type, the common perch. Good enough to eat, replied Ned. Second, the abdominals, whose ventral fins are underneath the abdomen and behind the pectorals, without being attached to the shoulder bone. This order is divided into five families, which include most of our freshwater fish, types, carp, and sea pike. Phew, said the Canadian with some scorn. Freshwater fish. Third, the subbrachians, whose ventral fins are beneath the pectorals and attached to the shoulder bone. This order comprises four families, types, plaeus, dab, brill, sole, etc. Excellent, excellent, exclaimed the harpooner, determined to consider fish only from the point of view of food. Fourth, continued Conseil, without allowing himself to be put off, the apids, with elongated bodies, no ventral fin, covered with thick skin, often gluey. In this order, there are only one family types common eel and the electric eel mediocre mediocre answered ned fifth said conseil the lafobranchiates with jaws complete and mobile and whose gills are formed with little tufts arranged in pairs only one family in this order type seahorse pipefish very bad horrible said the harpooner sixth and last continued conseil the plectognathians whose upper jaw is attached and fixed into the skull, making it immobile, a species having no true ventral fins, two families, types, globefish, and moonfish. Even a common pot would consider it a disgrace, cried the Canadian. Well, did you understand everything Ned can say? The savant asked. Not a word, friend can say, replied the harpooner, but keep going. I find you very, very interesting, just the same. As regards cartilaginous fish, can say continued imperturbably, they consist of only three orders. Good, so much the better. First, the cyclostomes, with round mouths and gills that consist of a large number of openings. This order has only one family, type, the lamprey. We love that one, said Ned. Second, the salatians, with gills like the cyclostomes, but with mobile lower jaw. This order, which is the most important order in this class, includes two families, types, the ray and the shark. What? cried Ned. Rays and sharks are in the same order. All I can say can say on behalf of the rays is this. Don't put them in the same tank. Third, rejoined Kinsey, the Storonians, whose gills are formed normally of one opening with a gill cover. In this order, there are four genera, type the sturgeon. Ah, friend Kinsey, you've kept the best till the end, in my opinion, anyway. Is that all? Yes, my worthy friend, replied Kinsey, and remember that when one has mastered all this, he still knows nothing, for the families are subdivided into genera, subgenera, species, and varieties. 
well can say, said the harpooner, leaning against the plane. Just take a look at those varieties that are passing by. Fish, cried Kinsei. This is like being in an aquarium. No, I replied, because an aquarium is only a prison, and those fish are as free as the birds of the air. Well, Kinsei, go ahead and name them, said Ned. I am afraid I can't do that, replied Kinsei. It's up to my master now. Indeed, the worthy lad, who had an obsession for classifying, was not a naturalist, and I do not know whether he could have distinguished a toonie from a bonito. In a word, he was the opposite of the Canadian, who could name all these fish without hesitation. A triggerfish, I said. A Chinese triggerfish, Ned Land added. Genus, Ballestes, family, Scleradermi, order, Plectonathi, murmured Kinsey. Without a doubt, Ned and Kinsey put together would have made one distinguished naturalist. The Canadian was not mistaken. A school of triggerfish with fat bodies, grainy skin, a pointy spur on their dorsal fins, gambled all around the Nautilus, splashing the waters with their four rows of sharp, prickless spurs on each side of their tails. Nothing is more fascinating than their bodies, with their gray dorsals and their white bellies, with touches of gold scintillating in the dark eddies of the waves. Among them rays swayed like the sheets in the wind, and among these I noticed in my great delight a Chinese ray with a yellowish dorsal, a soft pink belly, and with three sharp spurs behind its eye, a very rare species whose existence was still questionable in the days of La Sabede. He had never seen one except in a collection of Japanese drawings. For two hours, a whole army of aquatic animals escorted the Nautilus as they gambled about leaping and splashing, vying with each other in speed and beauty, I identified the green labrae, or sea partridge, the banded mullet with its two black stripes, the round-tailed goby, white but with touches of violet in, on its back, the Japanese scobrus, an admirable mackerel of those waters with a blue body and silvery head, the blue gold azuros, whose name describes the, them adequately, striped gilt heads, with fins tinged in blue and yellow, a second type of gilt head with a black band in its caudal fin, a third type with its an excellent corset of six stripes, allostomy, veritable woodcocks of the sea, some species of which attain three feet in length, Japanese salamanders, spiny sea eels six feet in length with small piercing eyes and huge mouths bristling with teeth. There was no end to our cries of admiration and amazement. Ned called out the names of the fish, Kinsey classified them, and I was in ecstasy in the presence of, e of such speed, graceful movements, and the beauty of their forms. Never before had I had the opportunity to see these vivacious animals living and free in their native setting. I shall not mention all the varieties and species of fish that appeared before my dazzled eyes. A complete collection, it seems, of all the fish that swarms the sea of Japan and J China. They swam in schools were more numerous than birds in the air, attracted undoubtedly by the beams of our searchlight. Suddenly, however, the lights of the saloon were turned on, the panels closed, and that enchanting vision vanished. I remained deep in thought until my eyes fell on the instruments hanging on the wall. The compass indicated our direction to be still east-northeast. The manometer indicated a pressure of five atmospheres corresponding to the depth of 160 feet, and the electric log gave our speed at 15 miles per hour. I expected to see Captain Nemo, but he did not appear. The clock on the wall pointed at five. Ned and Conseil returned to their cabin. I went back to my room. My dinner was ready. It consisted of turtle soup, 
made of the most delicate sea tortoise, a sir mullet whose flesh is white and somewhat flaky, and whose liver, served separately, made an exquisite dish, and fillets of holocanthus, whose taste seemed to me to be superior even to the salmon. I spent the evening reading, writing, and meditating. Then, overcome by sleep, I stretched out on my couch of seaweed and fell into a deep slumber while the Nautilus sailed smoothly through the black current. Questions to consider after reading. Professor Aranax said, without a doubt, Ned Land and Conseil put together would have made one distinguished naturalist. What do you think of this? Conseil and Ned Land come at fish from two different perspectives. Conseil, who classifies each of the fish, and Ned thinks of them as food. Which perspective do you understand the best? Why do you think Nemo disappeared in this chapter? Where do you think the Nautilus is going right now? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.